Good morning, everybody. Man, it's good to see you all this morning. It's good to be together. Thanks for just taking the time to, however you look at Sunday, whether it's the end of your week or the beginning of your week, thanks for taking the time to be here. Uh, it's a really special thing for God's people to gather together, to celebrate, to sing, to share life, uh, to pray for each other. I saw, yeah, I appreciate it. just the, the family. Uh, Ruben mentioned that a couple of times. That's what, that's what the church is. We're, we're people who are related not by biology, but by choice. Uh, we're related as a spiritual family, and our choice to, to surrender our lives to Jesus, it, it bonds us together in his love that's, that's poured into our hearts. So thanks for just being a part of that family. And so um, this is the beginning of Holy Week. And um, as, as we talked about, this is traditionally is called Palm Sunday. Now, we're not going to, <clears throat> to cover the traditional Palm Sunday text. And maybe you're familiar with it where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey as this humble servant king. And as the story plays out, within a week, um, he would be, in fact, crowned king. But his coronation as king wouldn't look anything like people imagined. His coronation as king was his crucifixion. As he's hanging on a cross with the words king of the Jews uh, above his head. And Jesus, as his life is is sort of ebbing away as he is laying down his, his life in sacrificial love. He is breathing out forgiveness and mercy, even for those who are, who are killing him. But this, is, this is what Holy Week is. Now, uh, I don't know if you have heroes. I don't know who your heroes are. Maybe there are people in your life who uh, you know uh, maybe you're into Marvel movies and you have um, these, you know, fictional heroes. Um, but I, I'm convinced that we need better heroes in our life. Like, we need spiritual heroes. Uh, people who have come before us, who maybe we look back in the past, and, and we look at these figures of faith that inspire us to go deeper in our relationship with Jesus. So I want to introduce you to a couple of my heroes. Uh, the first one, uh, his name is Fodor Dostoevsky. Anybody heard that name before? So Russian, uh, it's kind of a fun name to say. Uh, he lived in the 1800s, 1821 to 1881. And a little bit about Dostoevsky, he was an author, and he belonged to this, in his younger years, he belonged to this, this group of authors, this kind of literature circle. And um, what happened was the, the czar of, of Russia, Tsar Nicholas I, began to be threatened, as leaders often are, um, of, of poets and writers, and he was threatened by this group in this literature circle, saw them as dangerous to his authority. And so he had them set to be executed, to be taken before the firing squad and put to death. And so here's Fodor Dostoevsky uh, facing the end of his life. He's facing execution. But instead, uh, at the last minute, there was a, a messenger who rides in um, just as he's about to have his life taken from him, a, a messenger rides in with a letter from the czar that stays his execution. And so rather than being put to death, he's actually sentenced um, to, to serve and work in a Siberian prison camp. Now this moment for him changed everything. Like imagine for a second knowing that this is the last moment of life. I mean, this is it. And then all of a sudden, as you're coming to terms with your life almost being over, it's like your life gets handed back to you. 
And so that, this experience in his life, it, it completely changed him. It changed him forever. It reignited, one of the things it did is it reignited his Christian faith that had kind of been laying dormant inside of him. And so he goes to this prison camp in Siberia with these horrific conditions. And the only book he's allowed to read is the New Testament. And so he just begins to pour over the pages of the New Testament, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what happens in Dostoevsky's heart is he just becomes in awe of Jesus. Like, he had always sort of, like, believed in Jesus, kind of this, you know, figure out there somewhere. He had this sort of faith, but he begins to be absolutely awe-inspired by the person of Jesus. And so later in life, uh, he's released from the prison camp, and he begins to, to write, and he becomes one of the most well-known authors in the world. Um, so you can look up Dostoevsky's books. His books are absolutely amazing, and he writes from this Christian perspective. And, and in his later years, he, he writes his masterpiece, and in it, um, he writes these words. And from the moment that these words were, were published, they captivated the hearts of people who read them. And here are the words. Beauty will save the world. Beauty will save the world. Now here's Dostoevsky. He's seen the ugliness of the world. I mean, he's seen the worst that people can do to each other. He has endured the harshness and the ugliness and the bitterness of, and the brutality and the pain of what this world will offer. And he is convinced that the world will be saved by beauty. So there's Dostoevsky. Now, uh, about 100 years later, there was another Russian dude named uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. That's a, another fun word to say. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And he himself, he spent eight years in a Russian prison camp uh, called a gulag. And after he was released, it was very much like a concentration camp, and after he was released, he writes this uh, this unbelievably, I mean, it's a difficult book to read, not only because it's three volumes long, but because of the pain it chronicles. He, he just chronicles the eight years in this, this horrible place. Um, and his book is called The Gulag Archipelago. And it's like an archipelago is kind of this idea of a series of islands. It's like a land formation, a series of islands. And that's what he says. That's the analogy he uses for these prison camps in Siberia. It's like a gulag archipelago. And, and he writes this book, and he just pulls back the, the iron curtain to, to expose, like, the ugliness of what was happening in communist Russia. And he's, he's awarded, in 1970, the Nobel Prize for Literature. And in his Nobel Prize speech, he uses these words from 100 years earlier from Fodor Dostoevsky as the center of his speech. Beauty will save the world. Now think about this. Two, two men who have experienced the tragedy of, of life in this broken world. I mean, as Kyra, as you talk about, right, the, the school shootings and, and the pain and the, you know, all of the brokenness we see around us, how can you say that beauty will save the world when there is so much pain in the world, when that just doesn't feel like there's enough, like, substance there to actually do it? And yet, both of these men were followers of Jesus. I mean, they were, they were followers of Jesus, and they believed to their core that there was nothing more beautiful than the person of Jesus of Nazareth. They believed that there was nothing more beautiful than him pouring himself out and giving himself away for the needs of the world. 
that Jesus was the very presence of God who came into this world, like in flesh, in a human form, and he didn't come into this world to like point an an accusing finger. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world in all of its brokenness and ugliness. He came into the world to save it, to redeem it, to heal it. Um, That Jesus, he, he went around healing the sick, placing hands on on lepers who were said to be untouchable and were pushed to the edges of the community. He went around eating meals with sinners, sinful people, and offering them grace. He went around teaching anyone who was interested in sitting at his feet and learning about what it meant to live life with God in his kingdom. And ultimately, there is nothing more beautiful than this God in Jesus who loved his broken creation so much that he was willing to take the sin of the whole world your sin, my sin, upon himself to take our shame and our brokenness on himself and allowing himself to be executed on a Roman cross. See, Fodor Dostoevsky and Alexander Solzhenitsyn believed that beauty will save the world because they believe that beauty has saved the world. Because there is nothing more beautiful than the grace of God extended in the outstretched arms of Jesus upon the cross. That this is the beauty that saves the world. <clears throat> now, I want us, um, as, we, as we move toward communion, I want us to just look at, um, we're, we're kind of still in this series called A Beautiful Church, like how Jesus is at work making his church beautiful, but we're not going to look specifically at the church in Antioch like we have over the last couple of weeks, but I want to look at one person who is a leader in the church in Antioch. Somebody maybe you're familiar with, if you're familiar with the New Testament, his name uh, was Saul of Tarsus. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 6. So uh, Saul of Tarsus, the words aren't going to be on the screen, so you you can either listen or follow along in a Bible or electronically, either way. Um, But what we want to do is I just want to track the story of Saul, and I want to look at his journey of what God had done in his life and how he became... um, Someone who had this beauty of Jesus living inside of him. And so, um, yeah, just to kind of highlight a a bit of his his story. So Acts chapter 6, verses 58 and 59. Now this is the first time we're introduced to Saul in Acts. And it's at a, a murder scene. Right, there's, there's a man whose name is Stephen. He's a leader in the early church. This Jesus movement, God has used him powerfully you, Stephen, and he is a threat to the religious leaders, so they begin, they accuse Stephen, they drag him out of the city of Jerusalem, and they begin to stone him. In Acts chapter 6, verses 58 and 59, we read this. Now, the witnesses who were there watching or participating in the stoning of Stephen, they laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's our first introduction to this guy, is he, he's at the stoning of Stephen. Um, now, you might think, well, maybe he was just kind of an innocent bystander. He was just there. They just happened to lay their coats at his feet. But verse 59, look what it says. It says, Saul approved of their killing him. So he's like endorsing the stoning of this man, Stephen. So what do we know about Saul from the very beginning? We know that he is affirming the violence that is done in God's name. Uh, we know that he's willing to kill for what he believes in. Now, here's the interesting thing. When you, when you look at Saul and Stephen, or, or Saul and the religious leaders that he represented and the Christians that they were persecuting, 
is, is the religious leaders were willing to kill in the name of God. They were willing to kill for what they believed in, but the Christians, those who had the beauty of Jesus in their souls, they weren't. But they were willing to die for what they believed in. See, these followers of Jesus, they believe that there is something worth dying for, but there is nothing worth killing for. And so we see that in Saul, he just has this violence in his heart. It goes on, Acts chapter 8, verse 3. Um, Acts chapter 8, verse 3 says this, but Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house, and he dragged off both men and women, and he put them in prison. So he's just trying to do as much damage to the followers of Jesus as possible. Can you imagine this? If like this morning, if we were gathering, and there was this threat that we were going to be sort of carried off and put in prison or, or you know, um, harm done to us because of our faith in Jesus. That was the context. So here's Saul uh, destroying the church, Acts chapter 9. Verses 1 and 2, it says this, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. It's just like the, everything he, he's, he's doing is just this uh, vengeance and violence, and he's breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he, so he goes to the high priest, and he asks him for letters to go to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there in the city of Damascus who belonged to the way, that's the way of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So what's he doing? He's, he's like Saul the bounty hunter, right? I mean, he's, he's like seeking out, he's hunting down these Christians. He's not rogue. I mean, Saul is not like, he, he's, not, um, he, he's not just sort of like completely off on his own, but he is zealously religious, Saul has dedicated his entire life to the servant of the God, serving the God of Israel. He's a Pharisee. I mean, he studied under one of the most prominent Pharisees in the early, those days, uh, the Pharisee Gamaliel. Um, he believed, like most Pharisees did, that if they could get all of the nation of Israel, all the Jewish people, to be fully faithful to God's covenant for one week, from Sabbath to Sabbath, that the Messiah would come. Did you know that? That's, that's why the Pharisees were so ticked off at Jesus, because he's going around like, it seems like he's breaking all the rules. And they believed that if, if they could just get all good Jews to be faithful to the covenant from one Saturday to the next, that the Messiah would come and save them. And that's what Saul believes. And so here are these Christians, and he's so convinced Jesus is a false Messiah, and he's so convinced that these followers of Jesus, that they need to be snuffed out, that he is doing God's work by actually um, trying to bring persecution to them. He is so sincere, but he is sincerely wrong. You know that's possible? I mean, it's possible to be so incredibly sincere, and just as he's about to find out, to be sincerely wrong. So, okay, so that's Saul. Now let's look at what happens to him. Um, verses 3 to 6, they're in chapter 9. So he's on the way to Damascus. It says, as he nears Damascus on his journey... Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell on the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, the voice speaks his name, says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, he gets knocked off his donkey, right, by a blinding light from heaven, and he hears a voice speak his name, and he knows from the, the very first moment of this, he knows this is God speaking to him. Like he knows, he's, he's heard accounts like this in the Old Testament, and he knows, man, God is speaking to him. 
And so he's expecting it to be God. And so he asks, he's like, who are you, Lord? Right? He knows it's like a messenger from God. Who are you, Lord? And then he hears these words that like inflict so much pain to his heart. He hears these words that are so disorienting, so like blinding that he just doesn't even have categories for him. And here's what he hears. He says, this voice says to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I mean, can you imagine what was happening in Saul's heart at this moment? Like, I, the one you're persecuting, I am the Lord. I am this God who you have been thinking you were worshiping your whole life. It is like in this moment, these words shock him to his core. He comes undone. He has been completely wrong. Have you ever been completely wrong about something? Where it's like you thought you saw things clearly, and you just realized you you didn't. You were completely wrong. I had one of those moments this week, and again, it's not nearly this dramatic, but I was in the airport. We, we flew to Kansas and back, and it's kind of a silly example, but, um, you know, in the airport, they had these, these trash cans that have handles on it, and I'm a bit of a germaphobe, so I'd like open it with my elbow. I'm like, this is kind of awkward. You got to like open it. And I'm doing this like for, for trip. You got to pull it with your elbow and then drop your trash in and close it. And I did this like for three airports. And then we're on the way home and I'm standing there and we're getting ready to board and a, a woman comes up and she's got a handful of trash and she steps on the thing and drops her trash in. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Like I never noticed like this little foot pedal that was so conveniently placed. Um, again, a silly example, but it's like, I just missed it. I blew it. I don't know if you had moments like that. Or, but here, here's Saul. It's like he, he realizes he, he just blew it. And what happens to him? He's completely blinded by the truth of who Jesus is. Um, Saul is, is blinded, and he spends three days in complete darkness, unable to see. And it says he's fasting. He doesn't drink anything or eat anything for three full days. Why? Well, he's mourning. Right? He's so distraught. He's just like he's crushed. He's mourning. Uh, that's, that's what you do in a Jewish culture when you're, when you're mourning is you, you fast, and he's there. He's fasting, and he's, he's praying, and he's, he's searching his heart. Like, God, how could I have missed this? And then there's this beautiful scene, verses eight, 10 to 18. It says, now, there in Damascus, there was a, a disciple whose name was Ananias. And God speaks to Ananias in a vision, and he says, Ananias replies, yes, Lord. And the Lord, Jesus, speaks to Ananias and says, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for the man from Tarsus named Saul. Now, what do you do if you're Ananias? I mean, you know this dude has presided over the killing of Stephen. You know he's dragged men and women off, put them in prison, and you know he has come from Jerusalem to hunt you down and to take you to prison. You have been praying for God's protection against Saul of Tarsus, and now God speaks to you and says, I want you to go seek out him. He has had a vision of a man named Ananias coming to him and placing his hands on him to restore his sight. No, but Lord, Ananias said, I've heard so many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with the authority of the chief priest to arrest all who call in your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, 
This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias goes, and he, he goes to the house of Judas there on Straight Street, and he finds Saul in darkness, fasting, just kind of in despair. I imagine Saul just kind of crumpled up on the floor. And it's one of the most beautiful scenes in Scripture, in my opinion. Here's Ananias, who comes to this broken Saul. And it says he enters the house, and he placed his hands on Saul. And picture, picture this in your mind. He places his hands on him, and he says these words, Brother Saul. <sighs> Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me to you so that you may see again for the first time, that you can see clearly, and that you may be filled with the Holy Spirit, God's very presence. And immediately in that moment, it said something like scales fell off Saul's eyes and he could see again, and he got up and he was baptized right, for the forgiveness of his sins. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is such a beautiful scene, isn't it? God's healing of, and forgiving of, of the sin of the, this violence and this going from breathing out threats and murder to being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. This is Saul. Now, what does Saul do? So Saul's forgiven. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's baptized. He is brother Saul. He's completely switched teams. But do you know what he does? He goes into those synagogues that he had been carrying letters to, to try to hunt down Christians and try to, you know, have people inform on somebody else. And he has these letters with him still, but he goes into the synagogues and he doesn't start condemning Jesus and the followers of Jesus. He goes in and he starts in those very synagogues in Damascus declaring Jesus is Lord. Now, can you imagine how shocking that was? It's like the guy had completely switched teams. And... The entire script is flipped. And so um, instead of arresting the disciples, he is, he's with them. He's sharing life with them. And he is defending their belief about Jesus as Lord. And the text says, if you read on, it says he baffled people. Like people were stumped, not only because of his transformation, but because he was so convincing. I mean, Saul was a brilliant dude. Um, he had all, I mean, he... Like, good Pharisees, like, like Saul, would have had most of the Old Testament memorized. I mean, it was in his heart. Like, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all memorized. All in his heart. He would have prayed the Psalms every day of his life. Um, and he would have had the scriptures like Isaiah, probably committed mostly to memory. And so, he, here's Saul, who just has, like, all of this information, all of this knowledge, and he just begins to apply all these pieces and see how all of these threads from the Old Testament come together in Jesus. Like, it, it all becomes clear. It's like when he understands that Jesus is God, Jesus is the very presence of God, it's not just that Jesus is the one missing piece that completes the whole puzzle. It's that everything Paul, Saul had been doing up to this point is putting the puzzle together upside down. You ever try to put a puzzle together upside down? You try it sometime. Like you put, a, put puzzles together upside down and it's hard and it's confusing. And then it's like all of a sudden he gets this last piece, the missing piece, which is Jesus, which links the whole story of God together. And then it's like God flips the puzzle over and he sees clearly for the first time the beauty of who God really is, that God has always looked like Jesus. 
that Jesus is the very presence of God. And so everything changes in Saul's heart. Now, he goes to Damascus, and he goes into these synagogues, and he starts to preach to Jesus' Lord, and you know what happens to him? Any guesses? They try to kill him. They try to kill him. So they have to have this elaborate escape plan. They put him in a basket, lower him over a wall in the middle of the night, and he runs off to Jerusalem. So he goes to Jerusalem, and what happens to him there? He starts preaching um, in synagogues and things like that there in Jerusalem, and they try to kill him, right? There's a theme here. Um, He is just like, Saul is as zealous for Jesus as he was against Jesus, like just weeks earlier. I mean, right, he's just as passionate for for the way of Jesus as he was against Jesus. And so, um, at the end of Acts chapter 9, at the end of Acts chapter 9, it says all the believers, they learned of this plot to kill Saul, so they took him down to the coast, down to Caesarea, and they sent him off to Tarsus, to his home. Saul, go home, man. Why? Well, it's like, I think Saul was a little too hot to handle. Do you know anybody like that? Is it like, I mean, they're, they're passionate, like they're zealous. And they, they, maybe they're, they did this 180 where Jesus got a hold of their life and, and, and they, all of a sudden they're going full speed the other direction for Jesus. And they're just like, whew, they are too hot to handle. And that's, that's what was happening in Saul's life. And so he was just like pushing people away and people were bouncing off of him. And, and it was disturbing like what God was doing in this in the churches in Jerusalem, and so they take him to the coast and they send him home to Tarsus. Now, how long was Saul in Tarsus? See, this is the last time we hear of Saul until in Acts 11, two chapters later, when Barnabas goes to find him. Barnabas goes down to Antioch, to this beautiful church. He sees what the grace of God has done, and he says, do you know who needs to be here? Saul does. Barnabas goes to Tarsus to find Saul and brings him back to Antioch where he begins to teach the disciples. How long was Saul in Tarsus? Best guesses are 10 years. 10 years. A decade where we know nothing about what he was doing. You can read this in in Galatians chapter 2 where Paul tells his story. And it's just like he's in a decade of obscurity. Nobody knows what he's doing. What, is he living at home? Is he making tents in the family business? I mean, think, this is God's chosen instrument to, to make his name known to the world, and he lives in Tarsus for 10 years, and we have no idea what's happening. Why? It's because Saul, I think, he had all the information, and he had all the pieces put together But do you know what he didn't have? He didn't have a soul that was formed in the way of Jesus. He didn't have a beautiful soul. He didn't have a a life that actually took on the rhythms of grace, that that lived out the way of Jesus. And it's one thing to, to sort of know the truth. It's another thing to live the truth. And I think that's what Saul needed over those 10 years. So what do we learn from from some of this. I think just a couple, a couple things. I want to make a couple of observations about what it means for us. Um, and one is this, that I, I really believe that who we are becoming is as important as where we're going. 
When you think about yourselves as LifeBridge, and you think like, um, okay, where are we going as a church? And, and at groups, like we, human beings, we need vision. We need somebody who's like looking to the horizon and saying, okay, this is where God is, is taking us. This is where we're moving to. But here's the truth. I, I really believe this, that who we are becoming in the process is as important as the destination we're headed toward. Do you believe that? That it, it, it's like this process of being formed. Um, that is the journey. Um, you could say it a different way, that what God wants to do in us or in you is as important as what God wants to do through you, as the work that God is going to call you to do. That we see this in the life of Saul. That he, he needed to be formed in the way of Jesus. How does that happen? A, a couple of things that we, we see from Saul that I think can apply to us. One, he needed to be healed by God's mercy. I mean, Saul could have lived his entire life in shame. Right? He, could, he could have lived his entire life under the, just the weight of the shame and the brokenness of what he had done. I mean, he had condoned murder. And yet, he wasn't. His journey with Jesus began by Ananias reaching out to him in grace, and Saul gets up and he's baptized. And, Paul, and, and Saul, he goes into the waters of baptism, just sort of like feeling his brokenness and shame, spending three days fasting and praying and, and the mourning and the guilt for his sin. And he goes into the waters of baptism where he's immersed in the grace of God. And all of the shame and all of the guilt is washed away from him and he comes out of the waters of baptism dripping with God's grace. Now this is, this is where Saul's life begins. He, um, and it's where our life with God begins. It begins by like this knowledge, by acknowledging our, our sin and by trusting Jesus for his forgiveness. That Jesus washes away our sin, our guilt, and our shame. This is where the beauty in our own lives, where it begins. Now, I, I, I know like some, some of us are, are tempted to say, oh, I'm too broken. I'm too, I'm, I, if you knew my story, like, it, it wouldn't be that easy. But the good news is Jesus knows our stories, and he sees us, and, and there's no surprises to him, um, and, and he loves us, and he gave his life for us. And... Um, and his life being poured out for us is what heals the brokenness in our lives. And the, the plan of the enemy is to keep us in that lie that says, I'm too broken, I'm too far gone, There's, there isn't hope for me. And, and the goodness of the gospel is by saying, just by acknowledging um, our brokenness, but in the light of God's grace extended to us in Jesus, this is where our healing begins. This is where Saul's healing begins. Um, move on. Saul then, after he comes out of baptism, he has to learn what it means to have Jesus at the center of his life. He, he ends up, in, later in Philippians 3, he says this, I, I love this, he says, whatever was to my gain, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. And what's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. I want to know Christ. What's at the center of Saul's life is knowing Christ. It's, it's this relationship with, 
with God through Christ. Jesus actually said in John 17, he says, do you know what eternal life is? Eternal life is to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That's what Jesus says in John 17 verses 1 and 2. Eternal life is knowing. And this isn't just knowing about, but it is knowing its intimacy and its relationship. And this is eternal life. And Paul, he has to, I keep calling him Paul because we, we know him later as the Apostle Paul, a sent one of God. Um, but but that's what he has to learn. He has to learn how to have Jesus at the center of his life, to be in this, this giving and receiving relationship with Jesus. And this is how we are transformed. It is through knowing Jesus that he invites us into this relationship with him. Um, Saul has to learn to become humble. So his sin is washed away. He learns to be in a relationship with Jesus, and he has to learn to be humble. Um, he, he goes from being sort of too hot to handle to saying things like this in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, I resolve to know nothing. I don't know anything except one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. I love that. It's like my life verse. It's like, there's a lot of stuff I don't know, but do you know what I do know and what I will cling to is Jesus Christ and him crucified. I think that is so beautiful. There, there is this humility that Paul has um, and he learns that, I think, in those 10 years in Tarsus. Saul has to learn to be patient. Anybody really good at being patient? It's like you, you know, like you, you just love being patient. Like when that car gets in front of you and you're in a hurry, but they're, like, they're not. And you just say, thank you, Lord, for this, this gift of learning patience. Where you, like, you seek out moments to be patient where it's like you take the longest line at the grocery checkout, you find the, the checker who m might look like they might be the slowest, and you're like, no, it's cool. My bananas weren't quite ripe yet. I'm just going to practice patience. Anybody like that? Probably not. We live in a frantic world. We are... We, we feel like we're, we're chronically, like we're going to miss out on something. We have the fear of missing out. And so we're just like, we're so busy. If you're going to put a tagline to American life, it's busy. And we feel good about being busy. Here's the thing. Jesus is not busy. Jesus is not in a hurry. Jesus had an incredibly full ministry, but he was never rushed. He was never in a hurry. He was never busy. God is patient. And so God just takes Saul and he sets him in this, this decade where he just has to learn how to walk with Jesus in the normal rhythms of life. And it's in that where his soul is formed. What did Jesus do for the first 30 years of his life? Apparently he wasn't in, in a hurry. 30 years as a carpenter, learning, going to synagogue, in his community. Yeah, have, you ever, have you ever realized how much of the Bible is a story of waiting? Right? God made a promise and then we wait to see it full. Are you in a season of waiting in your life? Have you ever been in a season like that? I've had two big ones. One when I was 20 and one when I was 40 this year. Where it's like I felt like God just sort of set me aside for a season. And it's hard to be patient in a season of waiting. Unless you believe that who you are becoming is more important than the things that you're doing. 
right? Because those seasons of waiting, they form us, and we learn to press into the heart of Jesus. We learn to trust him. We learn to trust our community. Paul had to learn to be patient. He had to learn to depend on God, moment by moment, receiving his worth, not from what he did, not from what people said about him, but from his life with God. That Saul, through this, and again, we can make more observations about this, but Saul had to become a beautiful Saul, a beautiful soul, and a beautiful Saul, right? He, he had to let the beauty of Jesus transform his whole being, and this is the same journey we're on. You're becoming someone more and more by the decisions you make, by choosing to follow Jesus, by choosing to trust him, by choosing to know him and have him at the center of life, you are becoming someone who Jesus is being formed in your souls, in your life. And this, this is the point. Because God actually wants to take this beautiful Jesus-formed you and this beautiful Jesus-formed church called LifeBridge, and he, he wants to give it away to the world around you. Um, see, the church is called the body of Christ. And, and just like the body of Christ that was, that was broken and poured out for the sins of the whole world, the church, the body of Christ, is called to be broken and poured out for the needs of those around us. You see, um, the truth is beauty will save the world. Because beauty has saved the world. It, it is Jesus who came into this world as the gracious gift from God and who, who showed us exactly what God is like, who showed us God's heart, God's nature, so we wouldn't have to ask questions about, like, what is God like? But by looking at Jesus, we see the very heartbeat of God. We see his essence. We see his true character. And this God who was made human in Jesus, Jesus comes into the world and he's like, I'm, I'm the bread of life. I'm, I'm the one who is going to fill you and sustain you. And, and you, you can try to find other sources of life and energy, but you won't find it. And Jesus, he, he, in his life, in everything that he does, but ultimately in his death on the cross, he's just allowing himself to be broken allowing his body to take the sins of the whole world upon himself, not standing over and above them, not, uh, not doing it to condemn them, but allowing his own body to be broken, to experience the brokenness of our humanity and the brokenness of the world. And so, this beauty that we see in Jesus, this is what saves us as we trust him, as we receive him, but it's, it's what saves the world. And so, what we're gonna do is uh, receive communion together, the broken body, and the shed blood of Christ. And um, I'll read just a very simple liturgy um, to kind of set this up. The elders are going to come, and, and they're going to serve uh, communion to you, so there'll be uh, some up here with bread and with the juice. You can come up, and you'll be able to break off a piece of the bread and grab uh, some juice. I invite you to take it back to your seat, and then just hold it. And if you, if you can't come up and carry it, that's fine. You can just go to your seat. And, um, and you can hold these. And then we're going to take communion together as a church family. Um, so this, this is our invitation to the Lord's table. And the elders, the elders can come. This is the table. It's not of the church, but of the Lord. 
And it's made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come. Come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come, because it's the Lord who invites you. And it is his will that those who want him should meet him here. Come to the table.